This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Giddy up isn't an expression you might associate with politics, but it's what Colorado's governor, Democrat John Hickenlooper, is calling the political action committee he formed Monday, a sign his presidential hopes are still very much alive. It is not, he says, a sign that he has made up his mind. But in our regular interview at the state capitol, he says he is very much interested in changing the national conversation. We're not talking about how to bring people together. We're still attacking and dividing people. You know, what Colorado's done is it's been about working together, you know, collaborating at the speed of trust, as we've said. That doesn't mean I'm running for president. It means I'm taking another step towards it. Yes, another step. And this step is to form what's called a leadership pack. Well, it's a small pack. It's, you know, it's a pack that's... Political action committee. Yeah, so it's a, a committee that allows you to raise money, but no more than $5,000. It's from individuals. And I'm going to get a little more involved in some of the other governor's campaigns around the United States. This year? Yeah, before the election. We're not going out and doing a gigantic effort for every race. Uh, but a number of the races I know and have met the candidates and think that what they're doing is important and and relevant. Let's take this step by step. So I will ask the presidential question first. Is this a road that allows you to continue that exploration for Absol- 2020? Absolutely. So the leadership pack allows me to develop policy. I can, it helps me travel. It allows me to support other candidates. Yeah, there's a certain amount of freedom that allows you to continue that exploration of of a 2020 campaign. Okay. And now specifically for 2018, give me an example of a race where you'd like to direct support. Oh, I think there's a woman running for governor in Georgia, uh, African-American woman named Stacey Abrams. You know, I've spent a bunch of time with her on the phone. She's impressive. I mean, she is very progressive socially, um, but she's also pro-business, right? But wanting to hold high standards. In other words, I think she'd be a great candidate in a place like Georgia. I think she'd be the first African-American governor of that state. That's what they've, they've been telling me. Is this a pack that would spend on Colorado races? Well, evidently, a pack like this you can't use in a Colorado campaign. But we'll find other ways to support Jared Polis. To support Jared Polis. Does he need it? I think so. I think that obviously he's got lots of his own resources in the campaign, but he's trying to reach out to the rest of the state and communicate all across the state, not just along the front range. Uh, and that takes more more resources resources in the campaign. But not necessarily more than he has. Well, again, to a certain extent, he has put a bunch of his own money into it. But I think that we as a community, and certainly uh, I've donated to him as an individual, there's always a limit to what people are willing to spend. And I don't know how wealthy Jared is, but at a certain point, I want to I want to be able to support his campaign. I think there are a lot of people out there that would like to support his campaign. You are not announcing with the formation of this leadership pack that you're running for president. Let's be clear. Absolutely not. So what is your timeline to announce? And what do you get out of delaying this announcement? Well, I get to really think it through and understand at an ever deeper level exactly what are the ramifications. And I get to educate myself on not only the time, commitment, and sacrifices for me and my family. I mean, once you really get in and talk to people that have done this, you know, I had a wonderful conversation with Gary Hart about a month ago. Former Uh, U.S. Senator from Colorado and, of course, former presidential candidate. Right. And and it really is something that once you do it, it's full-time, seven days a week, 70 hours, 80 hours a week for quite possibly two years. And I think 
when you make that kind of a commitment, you better have thought of all the ramifications, all the alternatives, but not just for myself, but for my family, for my wife, Robin, for my son. What is the timeline to say yay or nay to the big presidential question? I think uh, certainly after I'm out of office and probably a month or two or three months after I'm out of office, sometime in the late winter or spring. Fueling the fire here is an op-ed in the Washington Post. It was written by a columnist named Jennifer Rubin, who describes herself as center-right. She suggests that you could run for president in 2020 as the perfect opposite of Donald Trump. We're going to do a little bit of what on the late night shows has been called mean tweets. Are you familiar (laughs) with mean tweets? This is where you get... Uh, people to read what those in social media land are saying about them. Because what what struck me in part about this op-ed were the comments beneath it. And I thought they reflected uh, some of what the Democratic Party is struggling with. Would you mind reading these? Sure. Well, look at them. I'm not sure I'm going to read them. (laughs) Yeah, let's challenge Trump with a boring neoliberal centrist with a long, well-documented history of being cozy with big money and special interests. Why haven't we thought of that before? Oh, wait. So this is someone who is comparing you, essentially, I think, to Hillary Clinton, the losing candidate in 2016, and says, why should the Democratic Party put its force behind someone who's who's been a middle of the road who's been a small business person who's fought hard for to expand and get universal coverage for health care who's tried to make sure that there are jobs and that economic opportunity is for everyone who i don't know who some would say is far too cozy with oil and gas well i'm i'm i have a relationship with oil and gas but worked with the environmental community to create the first methane regulations in the united states or the world i mean if you don't have a relationship with people, you cannot get those compromises that allows us to create methane regulations. We we took the equivalent of pollution out of the air, the same as if we'd taken 320,000 automobiles off the road every year. That's progress. Are you progressive enough for what the Democrats need to win in 2020? Am I socially liberal enough? I think, you know, we fought every step for equal rights for everyone with the GLBTQ community, with the, the African-American, Latino community, the immigrants. I mean, that, that progressivism, I think, has been from the beginning, long before I ever ran for office, right? There's, a, there's a, a letter to the editor I wrote to a little newspaper in Connecticut from 1978 that a friend of mine showed me where I was saying health care should be a right. Basic health care should be a right, not a privilege. So that's a long history of progressive, you know, progressive work. Now, can I tell you what it says to me when you cite an article you wrote from 1978? Yes. You're doing the pre-opposition research to make, <laughs> to make sure that the skeletons are out of the closet before you announce. No, no. Okay. Trust me, there's still plenty of skeletons around. Well, this is public radio, so it's not pure mean tweets. Read the second reaction to this op-ed in the Washington oh, Post. Oh, this is a different. All right. I absolutely adore the guy. And while I'm a Democrat, I 100% agree that what we need as a country is a regular, thoughtful slightly dorky guy who lives in the gray areas and honestly doesn't think of himself as party first. Here's to building a hick coalition of moderate Dems and disaffected GOPers in 2020. Now, the people who posted <laughs> these used handles, Millennial, Liberal, and Luke Says. You're not Luke Says, are you? No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> wh- what do you make of that comment? 
I think it's obviously very complimentary, and one always likes to get a complimentary comment, even if they do refer to me as slightly dorky. Slightly is a good word to moderate the dorkiness. Uh, I think you like that you're dorky. Is well, that possible? Well, I was a, a nerd and a dork, you know, that kind of struggled my way through. And in a funny way, it does prepare you for some of life's uh, attacks. You know, the haters are always going to hate. And if you've been a, you know, someone who's been ostracized when you were in elementary school or high school, that's, you build up a little scar tissue. Jennifer little. Rubin, the, the center-right columnist, describes you as a policy wonk in her piece calling you the, the sort of antidote to Donald Trump. Okay, let's get to... But, 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 but yeah. the, the one thing I'd say on this thing about the, the Hick coalition of moderate Dems and disaffected GOPers, I think when you actually get down to it, I mean, if I were going to do this, what I'd want is to have a coalition of all measure of Democrats and a bunch of independents and a bunch of GOPers. In other words, I think the, the goal we should be looking at is bringing a much broader cross-section of people together. You, it sounds like a big tent almost. <laughs> I would never use a cliche. We reserve that for media. You're listening to Colorado <laughs> Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. More on the election and specifically the rather long ballot. Voters are going to decide a number of serious issues, ranging from transportation funding to campaign contributions to payday loans. What jumps out at you? Well, I think we'll, we'll support a bunch of these uh, in various ways. But I think the Fair Maps initiatives, which is... This is fighting gerrymandering, essentially. Right. Amendment Y and Amendment Z. You know, the goal there is to take a lot of the political advantage out of making maps for the local districts and the congressional districts. What's second on your list? Um, and maybe this is in no particular order. I don't know. You tell me. No, but uh, in no particular order. But I think the Let's Go Colorado, the transportation initiative, whereby we begin to get enough resources to really keep up with the economic growth we've seen, all the people moving in, that's just going to take more resources for infrastructure. So This is a sales tax increase. Alongside it on the ballot is something called Fix Our Damn Roads. I think right. damn is in the title. Which is, again... And this that, is about bonding. Right. That's both not the a, route that you want to take. No, the Fix Our Damn Roads would want to bond, basically borrow $3.5 billion, and the state would have to pay that back every year with no new resources. And I think that's crazy. The, the people proposing this are not willing to say where they're going to make these cuts, how many people are going to lose health care coverage, how much are we going to pull back from our education funding. Uh, I think they're focused on the cuts that people might have to make to their household budgets if taxes rise. And there are a lot of tax measures between statewide ones and local ones on these ballots. Yeah, the, there are a number of initiatives. But I think Let's Go Colorado really going after the basic infrastructure of the state should be a pretty high priority. And I don't think we should go out and borrow $3.5 million without knowing how we're going to pay for it, which is, you know, fix our damn roads. So uh, say I'd say I'm against that. The campaign limitations, you know, the thing that yeah. allows, if someone puts a lot of money into a campaign that allows the other candidates to collect a larger sum from everybody else, like five times or four times more money. Trying to even the playing field. Trying to even the playing field. I support that. I think that's a, a good initiative. Do you have a concern that the ballot might be so full of questions, many of them fiscal, that voters might just throw up their hands and say no to all of it? Well, you know, it's a funny thing about an each year, or not each year, but every two or every four years, we get a ballot like this where there's just a lot of initiatives on it. 
And each time I think voters are going to throw up their hands and they're just going to say no to everything. They never do. They go through each initiative, they read it, they think about it, and then they vote according to their values in their heart. They have often said no to statewide tax increases. Those haven't fared well in this state. Yeah, and I think that's, again, those are steep hills to go up just because many people in the state want to have more explicit detail of how every dollar is going to be spent, and they get that kind of granular connection on local initiatives. So statewide initiatives are more difficult, but doesn't mean they're not important. And I think Let's Go Colorado is one of those cases where, I mean, we passed referendum C some number of years ago. The sort of Tabor timeout, Tabor the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Yep. I'm actually glad you brought that up because Tabor isn't specifically on the ballot, but it's never very far away from the political consciousness. The end of your term, it seems to me, marks 12 years of Democratic governors trying to rein in or make changes to Tabor, even to get rid of it. None of that ever happened. I sat here with well, Bill Ritter wait, for four wait, wait. years. None I sat here for you for, with, with you for eight years. And, and Tabor remains intact, I'm sure, uh, much to the pleasure of its supporters. Well, but I, I think what we talked about was flexibility within Tabor. And I think, I mean, Tabor limits growth of spending from the state. Voters want a say in new taxes, which they've got. I mean, I'm not, I've never said we should pull that back and, and, and repeal that. It is worth pointing out that no other state has imitated Tabor. So we're still, decades later, the only state that has Tabor in place. There are but, many other constitutional provisions, by the way, uh, that have to do with budgeting as well. Along with Tabor, this has been called having the foot on the gas pedal and the brake at the same time. It's been, I think Bill Ritter called it the Gordian knot, your predecessor. I called and, and it the fiscal thicket. The fiscal thicket, say that five times but, but, fast. But, but to say that we've done nothing, I think you're missing, I mean, the hospital provider fee was a battle that was fought over three years. This was a way to raise money, especially uh, to pay for health care. Well, well, it was a way to raise the Tabor cap by close to a billion dollars. And I think that provided just what I was talking about. That provided a huge amount of flexibility that has allowed us to uh, increase funding for education, keep pace with the increases in health care. I mean, really be able to look at keeping up with our economic growth. In other words, we're, we're growing so rapidly economically that we need more infrastructure. We need more resources for some capital spending, like, for instance, schools in many cases. And, and hospital provider fee was a huge lever point to allow us to some of that flexibility. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos says his online retail giant will choose the location for a second headquarters by the end of the year. Talk about another announcement that people are dragging out that everyone wants to know the answer to. Uh, as far as we know, Denver is still in the running for the Amazon HQ2. What have you heard, if anything? Well, you know, I get my ear so close to the ground to try and pick up those sounds and vibrations coming out of Seattle. Um, or do you just pick up the phone and talk to Jeff Bezos? No, I, I've never talked to Jeff Bezos. Um, really? Yep. I've, never, I've, well, I've talked to him in, about other things, but I've never talked to him about this issue. You couldn't call him up today and ask? I, w- I, I could. I think it would not be in the state's best interest to do that. I think okay. it's better to keep him... He knows, you know, he knows. I think that's too pushy. Yeah, well, I just, there's a process that one goes through in these things. I think 
following the process, not always, but is usually the right the right path. But you haven't heard either way that Denver is in the running still, is out of the running. We've heard some rumors that, that we're we're still in the running okay. and that we are higher up. Now, whether that means we're in the top 10 or the top five, I don't know. But I, again, these are just rumors. These aren't factually based. Right. I don't, I'm not in the habit of reporting rumors. Well, can then you, don't can you t- report it. <laughs> can you tell us Edit who you're hearing out. it from? No, I can't remember. These, this, these are people that maybe don't work for Amazon, but uh, are vendors or have relationships with Amazon, but they don't know. This is what they hear from people in Amazon. This is like whisper around the table, right? Where you start and say a statement to one person and everyone goes around the dinner table. And by the time it comes back, it's a completely different statement. Like telephone. I'm just bringing it up to titillate you, to give you a (laughs) little bit of excitement in your, what's obviously a very busy day. Governor, thank you for being with us. You bet. My pleasure. Colorado's Governor, Democrat John Hickenlooper. We speak regularly at the state capitol. As you heard, we talked about some of the measures on this year's ballot. In the weeks to come, CPR News will have in-depth coverage of those questions, including debates here on Colorado Matters. And we'll be right back. This is CPR News. Now, a trip to Tanzania in East Africa, where only 4% of girls in rural areas graduate high school. That statistic astounded Sue Bahar of the Denver-based Africa School Assistance Project, which builds schools in Tanzania. What we realized after a few years of building schools in rural communities is that girls and boys were getting through primary school at roughly the same rates. Girls were doing uh, quite well in school, actually, but once they hit their adolescent years, they started dropping out of school at alarming rates. So Bahar wanted to try something new. She started a boarding school just for girls called the Kupanda Project. Uh, Reporter Mary Beth Kirchner went to Tanzania to volunteer for the organization and visited the school. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Let's start with some perspective about life in rural Tanzania. Why is it so tough for girls to get through high school? Well, as mentioned, the completion rates for girls in secondary school in Tanzania is typically 4% in rural communities. 96% of adolescent girls from these rural areas drop out with so many factors working against them. Sexual assault is pervasive and teen pregnancy Caring for young siblings, most of these girls come from families with five or more children, Uh, hygiene and menstrual support. Most of these girls stay home for a week when they're having their periods. Lack of clean water, little food, and few resources like computers or even their own books. And why is sexual assault such an issue for these girls? Well, the long walk to school, for one, an hour or or more down these dark rural roads, and they're often alone. So they're really targets for uh, this kind of an assault. Let's hear about where these girls live and go to school. You were recently there with Sue Bahar, who we just heard from. And for one thing, there's a lot of security. Right. So the security for adolescent girls in Tanzania is a huge concern with sexual assault or even kidnapping. So at the dormitory Sue took me to, there's a guard 24-7 at the entrance. It's all surrounded by a perimeter wall with only one main entrance that you can see in front of you. 
And that's really important because the last thing I wanted to do was build a dormitory and have the girls all be here and be vulnerable. That wall is 12 feet tall with this outdoor lighting to protect the young women. And the hub of this school is the dorm. There are about 100 girls who live here. So they all live here together away from their families while they are completing school and they're in a safe environment to do that. What else does this school do that others don't to get these kids through high school? Kupanda has been trying to answer the question, what do girls in East Africa need to be successful in school? So while there are aid programs for girls all throughout Africa that tackle these struggles individually, this embraces all these concerns under one roof. And Kupanda also offers them after-school tutoring and leadership training. It's pretty incredible to hear these girls talk about their futures. Let's listen to some of them. They're talking about their hopes and dreams. Like, Shani, who do you want to be? I want to be a lawyer. She wants to be a lawyer. Salome Kasalani? I want to be an accountant of bank. Vicky? I want to be a nurse. She wants to be a nurse. So that word kupanda means to raise up. So this project is now three years old, and it was based on a lottery system. The organizers wanted to be able to prove that by this nurturing approach, having all the girls under one roof, that could work for any young woman. They, they just didn't want to select only the best and brightest. So when the lottery closed, they left the door open to one more girl. I wanted to have someone in the program that, that we knew was the worst off. They were facing more challenges than anybody else at the school. That's Zach Sweat. Uh, he led the Kupanda Project, and he's taking over for Sue Bahar, who's stepping down after 10 years. But who did they end up choosing for this spot? Well, they essentially chose the neediest among all these very needy girls, 13-year-old Avodia Anatori. And to gauge if she was the right final girl to admit to the Kupanda program, Zach and another staff member did a home visit and spent about 24 hours with her. Went out and saw her in the morning, saw like what time she would leave and kind of what she had to do to get ready, taking care of siblings. She's getting up at 4.30. We would also just not eat. They didn't eat because Avodia never had breakfast while she was helping her five siblings get the day started. There just wasn't enough food. Then Avodia had a two-hour walk to school, one way, starting at 5 a.m. So Zach did that with her. Then she typically didn't have lunch either. There was no lunch at school. And after a full day at school, Zach walked with her on the two-hour route back home. And by then, it was getting dark, and there were more chores to do. And her mother had prepared a quick plate of beans and cornmeal for them to eat. And it was straight into work, because at this point, you don't have much time. And so we head out with buckets on our head. Within a mile or so, we find ourselves at a local well, because it's shared amongst the community. You're there with 10 to 20 other community members in line for the water. So Zach carried water on his head with Avodia. And after three or four trips, it's now dark. There's no electricity in the house. And they start washing clothes by hand. And it's now 8.30. And this is her so-called free time. And that's kind of when she has a moment to, like, catch her breath and kind of pleading to her mom, can I, can I get some time to study now? Well, what a crazy schedule. And she still has the energy to study. 
with a solar book light, right? Uh So Vodia did her homework until 11 at night. So needless to say, she was picked as a worthy student for Kupanda. So Evodia got selected, and how did she end up doing? Well, Zach remembers back then Evodia could hardly speak. She wouldn't even look him in the eye. And the day Sue Bahar and I visited Kupanda back in June, it was four years later, and Evodia had just graduated. She came back, especially to see Sue. It's so nice to see you. Okay, Susan. I just wanted to start by saying congratulations on your Form 4 exams. You performed... Better than any girl at this school has ever performed. Okay, thank you. So here's this girl with all these things stacked against her, and she ends up coming out on top in her class and in the school. Right. The girl they thought was most likely to fail graduated with the highest final exam scores in the history of the school. She was also elected president of her class. So the day Sue and I met with Avodia in June, she was this confident, soft-spoken, articulate young woman wearing this beautiful dress, looked like it had been custom-made for her. She proudly told Sue about her plans for the future. As soon as I finish uh, my university studies and become a doctor, the first thing I'll do is coming back to my community and talk to the girls and other women that they should never give up on their lives and they have to start hard and they will achieve their dreams. So Avodia is this shining star. What about the other girls who've gone through the school? Well, Subahar says they've just completed a three-year Kupanda pilot project where they've literally flipped those dire dropout numbers with only 4% graduation. Of the girls who participated in the Kupanda pilot, 96% graduated. Even Sue says she was shocked and, of course, elated. And I wonder if you have any sense of what kind of a difference getting these girls through school makes later on down the road in their lives. Well, research by groups like UNICEF and the World Bank shows that educating girls is the single most important investment the world can make to end poverty and improve health. The single most important investment. The research finds that when girls like the ones we've been talking about in Tanzania get through high school, they have higher incomes, better health, and they're more likely to send their own kids to school. How does the community around the school feel about this? And what about the families whose girls leave them and then they don't have that person to help with the chores and other things around the house? There's enormous interest, enthusiasm, support for the program. There's great competition, if that's the word, for the lottery for girls to get in. There are just so many girls who would love to participate who... There are only 100 girls that can join. And even among the families, it's an enormous sacrifice when a girl like Avodia is picked for the program and then it's no longer available to help her mother. But I think it's honestly the mothers who see the potential for their daughters, who then look for support from aunts and uncles and other family members to make up for the loss of their child in the day-to-day chores to have this extraordinary opportunity for an education. Mary Beth, thanks so much. Thank you, Andrea. Mary Beth Kirchner is a freelance journalist. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about her visit to the Kupanda Project in Tanzania. It's an all-girls boarding school built by the Denver-based Africa School Assistance Project. The organization turns 10 this year. Denver has a new charter school, and that school has a unique and important focus— 
CPR health reporter John Daly explains its founder changed careers to work more directly with teens in recovery. At the new 5280 High School near downtown, students begin their school year with a project. Teacher Max Schwartz shows kids a 10-foot wooden boat made of plywood in the corner of the room and tells them this is what they'll be making, their own big boat. This is going to be the best boat. Okay, I want to see that best boat. Students break into teams to make cardboard and paper models. In a few days, they're building their creations. The 5280 school uses projects to teach innovation, problem-solving, and collaboration. But there's a constant focus on health and sobriety. Multimedia teacher Mario Sanchez says it's non-traditional. Yeah, the whole thing is, will it float? And so 5280 being a brand new school, um, you know, we, want, we need the students to help us and the staff needs to come together and we want to see if this school and will flow. And How the school will work is a key question for founder Melissa Mouton. She was set to be a doctor, a pediatrician specializing in adolescence. Then Mouton met a student from a Denver high school. He was a former heroin user who had to drop out of his Denver high school in order to stay clean from drugs. Mouton says that student chose homeschooling to finish high school and get away from bad influences. It was a decision that he made that he needed to um, kind of separate from his old friend group and get out of that um, drug culture. Mouton wanted to create a hands-on learning environment in a supportive culture focused on health and wellness. Each day starts and ends with wellness programs aimed at developing social and emotional skills. We should have a school for kids in Denver who are making serious decisions about their health and their recovery. There should be a place that is safe and a high-quality educational environment for them to attend. Enrollment now is at about 100 students, mostly freshmen. They'll add a new class each year. Yes, there's a huge demand. That's Dr. Paula Riggs. She's a professor of psychiatry and directs the Division of Substance Dependence at CU School of Medicine. She says there's a serious shortage of school options for teens with substance use disorders. We have very good research that shows that only about 10% of, of adolescents who could benefit from substance treatment receive it. So that is an enormous gap in treatment access and availability. Each day there's a focus on health and recovery. I've always, I've always been very defiant, you know. And it's like, I just feel like I'm giving into the system. They discuss common challenges, emotional wellness, and links between physical and mental health. Jacob Zimmer is a 19-year-old recovery coach. He struggled with drug and alcohol use in high school, but found help through a 12-step program. Basically, what my job is to do is to make sure that kids feel comfortable coming back into school while maintaining sobriety and overall living a, a better life from what they were doing while using. Zimmer is working with 14-year-old Jacob Landers. He's a freshman and wears a floppy hat and Bart Simpson t-shirt. Landers attended classes in Jefferson County. He started drinking alcohol when he was 12. That led to pot and Percocet. And then I started doing a lot of um, acid, and then I just went into a whole psychedelic phase, I guess. And I don't know. It just like I just started getting like really sad, and I just started hating myself, I guess. After an overdose, he went into treatment. Now seven months sober, Landers says he's ready for a school-based program that'll help him stay strong, something he thinks would have been tough at a traditional high school. It's just kind of cool to have that accountability with other, like, sober people to, like, you know, you you guys can just, like, you know, 
share with each other whenever stuff comes up. You know, you have that account accountability piece of like, yeah, you shouldn't be doing this. You know, you should be hanging out with this crew and stuff like that. A few days later, saws are buzzing. A fleet of boats takes shape. Jacob Landers is encouraged so far. His teachers explain the word boat stands for be present, open-minded, authentic, together. Landers likes the idea. And the metaphor for boat, I think, yeah, I think that's a good way of kind of explaining things, how we want the school to run, you know. Um, I just really like that metaphor. It kind of puts it all into one word. Jacob Landers says he sees his time at 5280 as a chance to grow and prepare for life's journey. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Whether it's banning plastic bags or plastic straws, there is an effort these days to cut down on plastic pollution. But it's what we can't see that may be the bigger issue, microplastics. Advocates call them the invisible problem. They're in surprising places, and they come from surprising sources. The nonprofit Adventure Scientists relies on lovers of the outdoors to collect data from remote, hard-to-reach places. And Katie Christensen spearheads its microplastics initiative. Hi, Katie. Hi, Ryan. How are you today? Doing well. You know, the West is known for rivers and lakes that draw people from all over. And you have found microplastics in them. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, we were maybe not that surprised to discover that microplastics were ubiquitous, not just in marine systems where they were originally known to exist, but even in the backcountry and in wilderness areas in Montana, um, in Colorado, throughout the West, really throughout the whole world. Well, I have a ton of questions about what <laughs> microplastics are, but first off, what got you looking into this type of pollution inland? You know, because I have so often associated this with oceans. Yeah, that's a great question. So we were really curious about where microplastics were entering the system. When we first started studying microplastics, it was through this global initiative back in 2013. And at that time, very little was known about microplastics, both the you know consequences of these polluting the environment, where they were coming from, the extent to which they're contaminating our um, ecosystems. So we were studying this issue as a marine issue, which is where most of the science had been at that point as well. Um, but we at Adventure Scientists were based in Bozeman, Montana. And the headwaters of the Gallatin watershed, which is our home watershed, it's our drinking water, um, takes its place in Yellowstone National Park. It flows through Forest Service lands, through wilderness areas, ultimately through Bozeman, Montana. And we were wondering, how is this river potentially contributing to what we had come to think of as a marine problem. And since we're really well equipped at working with volunteers in the outdoor adventure community, and since Bozeman is full of those kinds of folks, um, we harnessed this group of people and deployed them into the backcountry in the Gallatin watershed um, and asked our volunteers to collect one liter water samples that we then analyzed for microplastic pollution. Um, not surprisingly, you know, rivers flow to the ocean. Gallatin watershed is the headwaters of what ultimately becomes the Mississippi River. Uh -huh. So what we found in the Gallatin watershed, we know then is making its way downstream ultimately and contributing to our counts in our marine systems. Yeah. What did you find in the Gallatin? Yeah, so we ended up over the two years of our study, we worked with 120 volunteers to collect 774 water samples. 
Um, 57% of those samples that we collected were contaminated with microplastics. And just to put this in perspective, throughout our global study, we had 73% of our samples containing microplastics. That was much higher in our marine side of that um, data set. In our marine samples, we had um, 89% were contaminated with microplastics. So comparing that again back to our Gallatin study, this is a headwaters, freshwater ecosystem that runs through wilderness area, and yet still 57% of our samples contained microplastics. Okay, contained microplastics. We have to answer the question of what the heck microplastics are, of course. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we think of plastic pollution oftentimes as maybe a plastic bag or a straw or a plastic fork, um, you know, making its way down some river system or sitting in the environment or something that didn't make its way to the trash can or recycling bin. So with microplastics, it's the same general concept, except these are oftentimes invisible to the unaided eye. They're plastic particles that are less than five millimeters in size, and they oftentimes originate from some larger plastic object. So think of your um, polar fleece, this is like the classic example. Okay. It's this, um, you know, large, obviously visible object that is at least partially, if not fully synthetic in its composition. But that plastic fleece over time degrades, whether it's because you're wearing it out backpacking and you rub against a tree and some little pieces of what was this larger fleece come off or you launder it. And in the washing machine cycle, um, plastics um, are shed from that object and you end up with something that's less than five millimeters in size, oftentimes in the case of microfibers, it's even much smaller, like less than 1.5 millimeters in size. So definitely um, invisible to the unaided eye. And these are harder to capture. They're harder to put into a recycling bin because we don't exactly know um, that they are, that they exist, where they yeah. are, how to do that. Okay, so you gave two examples there with the bowler fleece. One is mm -hmm. I'm out wearing it and I rub up against a tree and maybe a little of the microfiber goes into the environment. I think the second example was that you wash the bowler fleece and it gets into the environment that way. So this isn't being this stuff isn't being filtered out by you know plants, water plants. Yeah, un unfortunately, the the current technology in most wastewater treatment facilities is just not adequate huh. to capture all of the microplastics that make their way in there. So even if they're capturing, let's say, 50%, which would be a pretty great number, um, in your typical laundering cycle, one piece of clothing that's synthetic can discharge hundreds of thousands of pieces of microplastics. So 50% wow. is just not going to cut it. Gosh, <laughs> I guess I feel like I, I just can't win. Like I, if I care for the environment and I want to go out in it and explore it, I put on my polar fleece because it's cold and now I'm contributing to plastic pollution. Right. I, I mean, put yourself in the mind of the listener who's just going, <laughs> I, living pollutes, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's me. I'm, I totally think about this when I go to bed at night. I'm not somehow, um, you know, distance from the fact that I am contributing to this problem every time I do a load of laundry. Um, but there are some steps that consumers can take to do something about it. And, and granted, this is a much, much bigger issue than really only 
is possible for one person to tackle, but things just as being, you know, simple as being conscious of what you're consuming and and buying products that are built to last. Studies show that those products that are built to last, that are built more robustly, they don't shed as many microplastics in the washing cycle. Um, washing your clothes less often is actually a really significant way to reduce yours as an individual's con- contribution to microplastics pollution. But I hear what you're saying, and I, I struggle with that. I, I think there's an opportunity with microplastics, um, unlike some other issues that are affecting us as a global community, because microplastics is not yet a polarizing environmental issue. Um, there's just, you know, mountains of evidence showing the, the ubiquity of this problem. And I think it's something that is, uh, it presents a lot of opportunities for people all over the world to get behind. And potentially manufacturers of these products, I gather. I mean, I think of microbeads, which got so much attention a few years ago that are in cosmetic products, for instance. There's been a real dent made in the microbeads, right? Right. So microbeads are considered primary microplastics. And those are those kinds of microplastics that were produced in the first place to be of the micro size. So microbeads, right? When we talk about microfibers, which for what it's worth, over 80% of the microplastics that we found in our Gallatin study were microfibers. So they were fibrous in origin as opposed to microbeads, for example. Okay. Um, Those are considered secondary microplastics. So those are originating from some larger object, like again, that polar fleece. Um, And in that case, it, it, it really is so important that manufacturers of these products are taking seriously um, this issue. And and I have seen that, especially in the outdoor industry, um, particularly Patagonia, who was one of our funders. These are organizations who are putting their money where their mouth is. They're doing research, they're developing products, um, and they're really contending with contributing to this problem and how they can lessen that impact. Now, uh, Katie Christensen from the nonprofit Adventure Scientists, I, I think we have to explore what the effect of microplastics are on the environment um, so that we're not sounding t- unnecessarily a panic alarm if one's not necessary. Do we, do we know what they do to, I don't know, fish or environmental health or something? Yeah, so that's a really important thing to put out there because what I will say to preface all of this is the research is still in its infancy. Microplastics is a new, um, you know, new field of environmental study because plastics is a relatively new product in these microplastics in particular. Um, So the way that they affect the environment, the way that they affect human health is all still Um, There's a lot of conjecture, and yet there are some studies that show that microplastics can affect the feeding behavior of fish, can actually cause constrictions in the GI tract of organisms that intake them, so like plankton or small fish. Um, They can cause lacerations in the inside of the GI tract. And when you think about microplastics, we need to not just consider them as these physical objects, um, but that they actually are possible transports of Um, chemical toxins in the environment. So a lot of these products, when they're produced, they're um, infused with dyes, with flame retardants, with other chemicals. And then as they move through the ecosystem, because of their properties, they can also attach themselves to um, persistent organic pollutants. So, you know, DDT being one example, but 
when an organism then ingests a ingests a microplastic, it's not just causing this um, potential blockage in its esophagus, for example, but it's also now ingesting these chemical toxins, and then those can bioaccumulate through a food chain. And um, humans that consume um, seafood or fish, but but also microplastics are in our drinking water. So you don't have to be an omnivore to still be ingesting microplastics. Well, I'll look forward to more science as it emerges. Katie, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Katie Christensen is project manager for the Microplastics Initiative through the nonprofit Adventure Scientists. And her goal is to find out how landlocked states contribute to microplastic pollution. Algorithms determine so much of our life. The movies we watch, the social media posts we see. Well, a voracious reader named Elisa Gabbert found a way around algorithms when it comes to choosing books. The recently returned section at Denver Central Library, where she might find anything. Often they're really old, weird things that I never would have heard of, genres that I don't usually read in or from parts of the library that I would never ordinarily visit. It's just kind of this flavor of what's available, a reminder of all the different kinds of books that are out there, and also all the different kinds of people that are in Denver using that library. One day, Gabbard saw a book by the celebrity chef Rachel Ray. I guess I don't think of myself as a Rachel Ray kind of person. Um, I don't watch her show, and I don't usually buy or read her cookbooks. This wasn't a cookbook, though, exactly. It was called My Year in Meals, and Gabbert took it from the recently returned section and brought it home. And it was almost like her own personal diary, just kind of recording the meals that she makes. It was just a really sweet view into, you know, the fact that even though she's like a Food Network star, she comes home and makes deviled eggs (laughs) and serves them to her husband while he makes her a cocktail. And um, I actually ended up reading it twice. Cover to cover, she says. Gabbert recently wrote about her favorite spot in the library for the New York Times magazine. They have a feature called Letters of Recommendation, which celebrates things that are underappreciated. She says for her, that's the returned book section. Or even just those free-floating carts of discarded titles. It's kind of like a secret anonymous tip from some stranger. And they'll never know that I checked it out after they did. But that connection is there, and it's just hiding under the surface. We'll link to Gabbard's article at CPR.org. Finally today, music inspired by Colorado's mountains and a divide of a different sort, the political divide in this country. Composer Benjamin Park wrote this piece for the Flatirons Chamber Music Festival in Boulder. It's called For Purple Mountains. Of course, that's a reference to a line in America the Beautiful. Park wanted to explore the divide between political parties in America and express his hope for a country that will someday be more united, a little more purple. The idea of purple being a mix of red and blue and the mountains being this more metaphorical divide between us. I wasn't going to write a piece that was going to fix that, of course, but to have a certain element of hope. Park integrated the melody from America the Beautiful. He says he heard the patriotic song at some difficult moments in his life. 
He sang it at his synagogue after the 9-11 terror attacks. He heard it again during the 2016 election when his rabbi asked the congregation to sing the song as a display of unity. In one part of the piece, Park replaces the melody of America the Beautiful in a klezmer setting. You can hear more of For Purple Mountains, recorded in the CPR Performance Studio, in the Centennial Sounds podcast from CPR Classical. Find it at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. (laughs) 